That was beautiful. That was quite nice. Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. And good morning to everyone watching and listening. God bless you, wherever you may be. And thank you for joining us uh, today in our Global Prayer Guide from Voice of the Martyrs. Working our way through the alphabet. Today we are in letter S. Have been for a few weeks now. And I'd like to bring to your attention Christian believers in the ancient nation of Syria. Syria is a restricted nation, or is considered to be so, according uh, to the voice of the martyrs. Syrian Christians' lives have been severely disrupted, as you can very well imagine, since their civil war in 2011. Between 750,000 and 1 million Christians have actually fled the country and are scattered abroad throughout the world. In the same time period, many Muslims, however, have converted to Christianity, have come to Christ. Praise God for that. Churches in Syria have been a beacon of hope and a source of peace for Syrians of all backgrounds throughout and after the war. Syrians come to the church for a number of reasons, out of desperation, in search of food, in search of meaning and truth most of all, and for answers about the Christian faith which is growing there. The news that neighboring host countries may send Syrian refugees home gives Syrian believers hope that those who came to faith in nearby countries will return and strengthen local churches. Syria is majority Sunni Muslim with a 10% Christian population. That is growing. Islamist groups seek to drive Christians out of Syria and the government does want to seek to gather some sort of control over churches. Specific cases of persecution are not common, but there is a general hostility towards growing Christianity. The ongoing civil war makes it difficult to determine whether Christians are being targeted for territorial reasons or for reasons that are actually related to their faith. Syria was once known for its religious tolerance relative to most nations in the Middle East. However, Christians there now face the same problems Christian believers experience throughout the Middle East loss of jobs, homes, social standing, family relationships. Those born into Christian families are allowed to worship in church buildings as long as they do not evangelize. But Christians who evangelize face opposition from both extremists and the government. Churches struggle to meet the needs of the overwhelming number of displaced people because of the war. Still, some Christians have chosen to stay in the country to serve others despite the danger and harsh conditions. A variety of Bibles in multiple formats are available through Bible societies and bookstores. However, access and distribution have become difficult and dangerous in many areas. Voice of the Martyrs helps meet displaced Christians' basic needs. We also provide training seminars for evangelical pastors who continue to serve inside the country. So please remember these folks in your prayers today and in the, well, always for that matter. They have a great need, and uh, we should help them in, in any way that we can. And the good news is there are uh, growing ways and means by which believers in the United States can help our brothers and sisters in Syria. And this reminds me of something I heard on a, at a Voice of the Martyrs conference uh, a few years ago, more than a few years ago, a little closer to the Civil War and its aftermath. And uh, their, their identity, their, their actual names, of course, were, were kept from us for, for obvious security reasons because these folks were from Syria and they traveled back and forth. And the message of uh, one uh, couple was they borrowed the old expression, be careful what you pray for. Be careful what you pray for. God will answer you a prayer. But sometimes he will answer your prayer in a completely and totally unexpected way. Uh, they came from a Christian family that had a Christian background, I believe, for several generations in Syria. And for many, many, many years, these folks were praying for a Christian revival in Syria. It never came. When the Civil War hit, it came. And they admitted before Americans... It took a war 
to bring Christian revival into our country. Pray that God will send revival, send the gospel, a good response to the gospel, the move of the Spirit of God through the gospel, but be prepared that He will do it His way. And it may be in a way that we may not like, at least not initially, or that may bring some big surprises and even some hardship and some toil and some danger to us. But the truth of the matter is, the gospel of Jesus is spreading like a wildfire through Syria and the countries that surround it. But it took a war to do it. Pray for it nevertheless. And nonetheless, His will be done. It's not about the kingdoms of man. It's about the kingdoms of Christ being built in this world and getting ready for His return. Sovereign Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank You for our brothers and sisters in Syria, and thank You for the growth of the gospel in the kingdom of Jesus in the ancient land of Syria. One of the countries in this world where the gospel of Jesus was first preached and first proclaimed. And now the gospel is roaring in that country all over again 2,000 years later. And we thank you and we praise you for it, no matter what the means by which you bring it about. It's success, it's growth in building the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that the gospel would so spread through every nation on the face of the earth, come what may. Whatever it takes, Lord, whatever it takes, may the gospel thrive in this nation and throughout this entire planet in preparation for King Jesus to return. As Paul will teach us this morning, to present a pure and holy bride, his people, his church, to himself. Please help our brothers and sisters in Syria, their efforts, Voice of the Martyrs' efforts in their behalf, the efforts of other ministries on their behalf. Keep them safe, keep them well. We pray for their physical and material needs because of all the hardship they're due to the war. We pray for all of our brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus the world over who have been watching and listening to our services, folks in Poland, Canada, six or seven states here, Pakistan, India, Philippines. We pray for all of these folks. Fill them with the power of your spirit and the power of your word. Purify them, as Paul tells us, by the proclamation and teaching of your word, that we will be a pure bride prepared for the great bridegroom when he returns. We pray for everyone here in our midst and our number who is mentioned. In our prayer request time this morning, work your perfect will in and through their life. Reveal yourself to them, Lord, and what all of us are to be in and by way of you in particular our Lord Jesus Christ, and by the power of God the Spirit working in our life, to the glory of God the Father, all and always. Hear our imperfect prayers, Sovereign God. Answer our prayers to your satisfaction in behalf of those for whom we are praying. Open the eyes and ears, the hearts, the souls of everyone watching and listening today and in the future to receive the truth of your word, live in light of it obediently, and to appropriate your words into action in our life. So may the meditations of all of our hearts now and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Sovereign God, our Rock and our Redeemer. In the sacred and holy name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Stand, please, if you will, for the reading of the Word of the Lord, our journey through Paul's letter to our ancient brothers and sisters in Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 28. The household codes. Codes for a Christian household, codes for a Christian marriage, Christian relationships in the home. Household codes, again, they've been traditionally called for quite some time. Ephesians 5, 25 to 28. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. These are the words of the Lord, and thanks be to God for them. Thank you, folks. You may be seated. I have something of an apology to make this morning before I dive into uh, 
unpacking the text, as we say. <laughs> For some reason, these past several weeks, I've been writing my notes in a smaller or finer hand, and I've sort of jammed them together for space on the page, so there's less space in between, so pardon me if I look up from time to time and I lose my place and I have to go back to my place, so forgive me for that. Um, How about that? Valentine's Day, commands for the husbands to love their wives. That's providential planning, not my own. Ladies, however, uh, this week, perhaps next week, we will be in instructions for husbands. But stay with me. Don't check out on me. Uh, Because in verse 26, uh, Paul will depart a bit from direct attention or instructions to the husbands. And he will begin to elaborate teaching on the person and work of Jesus as the model par excellence, the model, the chief motivator to obey marital commands for both husbands and wives. It's very interesting how he handles this here in his uh, household codes written to the believers in Ephesians. If you notice in the book of Colossians, he teaches the household codes there, but he's much more direct and to the point in some ways in dealing with husbands and wives and children and servants. Here, in the midst of his instructions for the husbands, he sort of departs from dealing with the husbands directly for a little while. He elaborates on teaching about the person and work of Jesus and his relationship to his church, and then he works his way back around to dealing directly with the husbands. So here, ladies, there's just as much instruction for you in this passage as as for the husbands. So continuing on with Paul's household codes, as they've traditionally been called for some time, for life in a Christian marriage and home. This week, of course, the Lord's plans and commands by way of the inspired apostle for Christian husbands. Verse 25 again. Husbands, how's that for direct? Husbands, love your wives. The first and principal command. Just as Christ himself also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that is, for us all, those of redeemed humanity who make up the church. It's quite a verse. It's quite a command. First of all, please note that as with wives, as with the women, so with the men and with the husbands, Jesus Christ personally, he himself, he is the chief motivator. He is the chief motivating factor for this command to be obeyed. The husband obeys this command for it is given by Christ and follows the example of Christ himself. So, brothers, Christian husbands, we obey because of Christ Jesus himself ultimately. Just as last week we found with the ladies, they obey their commands because of Jesus Christ ultimately. He first and foremost. He is even more important than our spouses are. We deal with our spouses the way he commands because of Christ. Because he commanded it, and we follow his example. As we learned last week with Paul's address to Christian wives, a marriage, a distinctly Christian marriage, that's what Paul is proclaiming and teaching and advocating here. A Christian marriage, here again, this is the key. It's a living symbol. It's not really all about us. It's about him. As I said last week, folks, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Christ. We find our way, our life, our meaning, and our purpose in Him. Our marriages are a living symbol, a living metaphor for that, may I call it a cosmic reality or a transcendent reality, of the relationship of Jesus Christ, God the Son Himself, and His bride, His church, made up of all Christian believers the world over of all generations. Let me say that again. Your marriage is a living symbol. It is a living metaphor for Jesus Christ and the church. The husband is commanded to love his wife, a direct and strong command in the original Greek and in any other English uh, translation for that matter that it can be translated into. And yes, the word he uses there is agapete or agape. And you folks should know all about that from our studies of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John this past year. Agape love is the highest, noblest, truest, purest form of love. It is unconditional love, as we call it, at least to a degree. It is self-sacrificial love. It is God-like love. It is 
the love of the nature and character and personality of God. I frankly do not believe that human beings on their own are truly capable of what the New Testament calls agape love apart from salvation and redemption in the power of God the Spirit in our soul and in our lives. This is God-like love. This is love that He gives as a gift that He showers upon humanity, lost humanity, redeemed humanity. And after we receive the new birth, we are given this love as a gift. And so we are commanded to love one another as believers and love one another as husbands and wives with agape love, God-like love, the highest, noblest, and truest, and self-sacrificing love. That's how a Christian husband is to love his wife. Notice that the wife does not receive this love command. Yes, ladies, you should agape love your husband. Because all Christian believers are commanded to love other Christian believers with agape love. But it is interesting. Paul gives this as a specific and explicit, strong command to the husbands. He does not give this command to the wives. Although a wife should agape love her husband. But because Paul specifically gives it to us men and not the wives, that should cause us to pay more, all the more attention to that command and to obey it. We need that command. Now remember, of course, Paul is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. This isn't Paul speaking. This is God speaking by way of Paul. This isn't Paul's culture, Jewish or Roman speaking. These are the commands of God for marriage, for family, for the household. So, Paul, inspired by the Spirit, he sets a very, very high standard, doesn't he? For the kind of love that a husband is to have for his wife, and it is the example of Christ himself. How could there possibly be a higher standard? When Christ himself is the model, the example. Christ is the model. He is the standard. Only, and by the way, as much confidence as we may have in our husbanding skills, let's be honest, this is one of the tallest commandments given to people in the New Testament. And outside of the help of Christ Himself, His Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, there is absolutely no way, men, that we are going to be able to live up to this command without His help. No way. Only with His divine help can any mere mortal man hope to even remotely live up to this command and this example. And so we should call upon His help on a daily basis. Christ set an example. Christ set the example that a husband should be willing to sacrifice absolutely everything himself for the benefit, for the welfare, for the well-being of his wife, his bride. That is a tall order indeed. Notice Paul's instructions for husbands. It's considerably longer than his instructions for the wives. The husbands get about nine verses here. And the wives only about three verses or so. Why is that? Is one more important than the other? Absolutely not. Let me give you the reasons why nine verses for one, three or four verses for the other. One reason is Paul's inspired view of the husband's role is so completely counter to what's going on in the world around him. What he commands husbands to do then and now for that matter is extremely counter-cultural to all of the prevailing accepted standards and understanding of a man's role in the Greco-Roman society, the time at which Paul wrote this letter. And by the way, that's more or less the way it's been in places around the world for the past 2,000 years to this very day. Also, another reason is that because, uh, for this reason, Paul's inspired instructions to men, to husbands, as I said to you earlier, he sort of departs from husbands for a little while in verse 26, and he starts to focus almost specifically and totally upon Christ as the model and the example. And then he'll work his way back around to addressing husbands. So he focuses a little more on the example of Jesus himself, Christ's relationship with his church, Christ's love for his bride, his bond with his bride, the church. And Hearkening back to the initial command, husbands are to love, agape te, agape love their wives, with God-like love, agape and all that that means, God-like love. You see what he's saying, husbands? Now think about this. You want to be God-like? Love with agape love. 
you want to mirror and image the character and nature of God, then agape love your wife. There's a start. Husbands should be image bearers of God in how they love their wives and care for their wives, and so thus to be an example to a dark world around us. This command charts out the course for the husbands, doesn't it, brothers? The husband's love behavior towards his wife. And this is given regardless of the wife's behavior, regardless of the wife's dowry, regardless of the wife's health, regardless of the wife's social status, regardless of the wife's skills or abilities, regardless of the wife's appearance, regardless of anything else. Clint Arnold, theologian whose commentary I've really been enjoying these past number of weeks, he writes, The fact that Christ loved the church, that's us, even in her most unlovely and unbecoming state, this defines the love commitment that Christ expects from a Christian husband. His love should be unconditional. End quote. And of course, never forget, or also, please take care to remember, the extent of Jesus Christ's love for His church, for all of us. Isn't that obvious? Or shouldn't that be obvious? Isn't that expressed in the absolutely incredible actions of Jesus Christ by giving His very life as a sacrifice on a Roman cross for the redemption of His church, His people, His bride? Now, it may not always be necessary, of course, for a husband to quite literally give or sacrifice his life, that is, to physically die for his wife. Sometimes it is necessary. Many times it may not be. That's obvious. But here's what Paul is saying. Whether we're called on to physically give our life for our wife or not, it is absolutely certain that each and every husband must love his wife sacrificially. He must deny himself. He must put his bride's welfare first. He must deny himself in many ways for the well-being and welfare of his wife out of agape love, God-like love for his wife. So I don't mean to be flippant or cute when I, 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 I suggest this. If in doubt, husbands, ask the question, what would Jesus do? Would you agree? Love your wife as Jesus loves the church? So in doubt... What would Jesus do? How would Jesus love? How does Jesus love His church? His bride. Call upon Him. He'll tell you. You really want to know. He'll tell you. He'll help you. If in doubt, do what Jesus would do. So again, what the Lord is giving us by way of Paul, let's be honest, goes against the grain, doesn't it? Oh my, does it go against the grain. It goes against the grain of fallen, sinful human nature that we all, men and women, fight against. Fallen human nature, male or female, is well-nigh incurably selfish without the Lord's help. Command, the command given here really does go against the grain, if I may say, of fallen, sinful nature. Commands for husband... Now, let me go back to the first century A.D. a bit. And to a certain extent, in certain countries and cultures around the world... It hasn't changed. It's still going to be this way. But let me hearken back to our brothers and sisters 20 centuries ago who are first receiving this letter, the time Paul writes it. Commands for a husband to love their wives this way, it was practically non-existent in the first century A.D. To demand that a husband should love his wife this way was practically non-existent in Greco-Roman society and culture. It did not appear in any literature that still exists from that time period that we know of, that we're aware of. It did not exist in Jewish culture, in Jewish literature of the time. Men are never commanded to so love their wives in any way as, as the household codes of the New Testament describes. Let me read that again. Men are never commanded to so love their wives in any so-called households of the time period outside of the New Testament, outside of the words and writings of the inspired apostle. Folks, that's how radical and revolutionary and countercultural Christianity really is. And it's for the better. For women, for men, for everybody. 
Paul is establishing a totally different foundation for the marriage relationship here, according to anybody's culture, practically. Then and now. The models, and why is that? I've said it before, I'll say it again, because we can never forget this. The model for marriage is predicated on Jesus. It's predicated on no mere mortal man or woman. It's all predicated on God Almighty, the Son, and His incarnation, and in His incarnation work. It's predicated upon Jesus, His love for the church, for all of us, which demands an incredibly high standard of love that husbands are called upon, thereby to give to their wives. Verse 26, that He, of course Jesus Himself, that He might sanctify her, that is the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now what is that all about? That's an interesting thing to say. So now Paul takes an opportunity to depart from husbands a little bit, not completely, but he's going to take an opportunity to elaborate upon Jesus, the model, the standard, the example. He's going to take a little bit of time to elaborate upon Christ for everybody's sake, Christ and his relationship to the church. So now Paul elaborates on what the effects, the effects, the results of Christ's sacrifice for his bride, the church, as theologians would say, something of a Christological aside or a Christological comment on the person and work of Christ here. So Paul reminds us all, and we should be reminded, that the church has been chosen. The church is chosen. The church is set apart for a mission, a purpose, a goal, a plan for Christ. And the church has, is being, and will be completely purified in part by the proclamation of the Word of God, the proclamation and teaching of sacred Scripture, the proclamation and teaching of the Bible. So pray God, in spite of this extremely flawed servant, I hope that's happening right now, even as we speak, and in the days ahead as folks listen to this. Paul's probably alluding here. Now, if you know your Old Testament well, especially your Old Testament prophets, you might see something of Ezekiel here. Paul has the prophecies of Ezekiel in his mind, probably by inspiration of the Spirit. He's alluding to the prophecies of Ezekiel here in this verse. Let me explain this to you. Washing, cleansing by water, the purification of sins in a person by sprinkling of water or washing of water, that's alluding to the prophecies of Ezekiel. Let me explain. Ezekiel, specifically in chapter 36... Ezekiel prophesied the new covenant. He prophesied a new covenant of salvation and how people would be cleansed of their sins when the Messiah, when the Christ showed up, when He arrived. So he prophesied of a future time when God's people would be sprinkled with clean water. What he means there, it's a symbol for having all of our sins, all of our impurities cleansed. This is what Christ's self-sacrifice has done for us, hasn't it? This is what Jesus, the great bridegroom, has done for His bride, His church. The very purpose of Christ's self-sacrifice was to purify, was to sanctify for Himself a bride, His church, His people. Now, when Paul means sanctify, he means two things here. When Paul means sanctify, I'll use the English words sanctify, it means two things here. First of all, the most basic idea of the word sanctify means the same as to consecrate. It means to separate, to set apart. His church, His people, His bride, His redeemed people, the new humanity which will inhabit His kingdom are to be pulled out of this world and set apart for His plan, His purpose, His goal. That's first of all. This refers to God's people, the church, Christ's bride, being dedicated to Christ's plan and purpose. Number two. Sanctify also means the idea of to be purified from sin. A person or a group of people receiving purification from, from their sins. So Christ's church, His bride, what Paul is saying, this is very important. This is your ultimate destiny. This is your ultimate future. If you really are a member of the bride of Christ, you ultimately will one day be presented to Him. You will be pure. You will be holy. You will be without sin. I don't know about you, but I'm living for that day. At least one of us, the other of us is. Dear God, the day when I can say, I have no sin. 
I am pure. I am holy. I am what God Almighty created a human being to be at last. How's that for hope and something to look forward to? That's the plan. That's the purpose. That's the goal. For the bride as a whole and every man and woman who makes up the bride of Jesus Christ. He will one day present us pure and holy and without sin. Or as Paul metaphorically says, no spot, no stain, no wrinkle. Our sanctification to a degree has taken place upon salvation. It is going on now. It is taking place now. And it will be finally completed, believe it or not. One day in the future, on the day of days, when the bride is presented to the king when he returns and the divine plan is all wrapped up, is all summed up in Christ as Paul has written earlier. Now also note, Paul states that Christ sanctifies his church by cleansing or purifying her. The word in Greek is katharizo or katharisos. Have you ever heard of or used the English word catharsis? The English word catharsis comes from katharizo which means to cleanse, actually to purge someone or something of some kind of an impurity. Isn't that interesting? So this purging, this purification, this cleansing is first and foremost what? It's spiritual. It's dealing with the soul, the spirit, or as Paul would say, the inner man, the inner woman. It is how Ezekiel prophesied salvation and cleansing in or by way of the Messiah. The Christ, when He arrives and inaugurates this new covenant. You'll find this in Ezekiel 36, 25-27 in particular. Now Paul's comment about Christ's church. Christians being purified by the washing of water. Well again, remember, he's got Ezekiel 36 in his head. He's using Ezekiel's terminology, Ezekiel's language for the purification of sins. Well, let's dig a little bit deeper. What does he mean by that? Let's pick that apart a little bit. Well, first of all, he is not referring to literally being washed with water, which was a literal physical ritual used by pious Jews as commanded during the Old Covenant, during Old Testament times. Nor, I, I have to hang my hat with the theologians who believe that, that Paul is not speaking about Christian baptism here as well. You may come to that conclusion or want to come to that conclusion at a first reading, but I don't believe he's speaking about Christian baptism here either. Remember what Ezekiel prophesied. This is a cleansing of the soul. Paul is speaking of an inward soul cleansing because of the work of the Messiah by the Holy Spirit. Water is also emblematic or symbolic of the work of the Holy Spirit. The work and person of the Holy Spirit. Paul is speaking of the inward cleansing of a person's soul because of the person and work of Christ and the applied work of the Holy Spirit of God. That's what he's talking about. And that's a process which continues until our final completion one day. This cleansing is made possible, again, by Christ's sacrifice. Look, let me walk you through it. Jesus Christ, by His atoning work, won our salvation. And when we receive the new birth because of His person and work, then the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God, enters our soul and applies the work of God the Son and gives us new life. And the Spirit of God indwells us and is enthroned in our soul, the core of our being. And He as well begins His work in cleaning us up, in purifying us and washing us and sanctifying us on our way to our completion and our eternal home in the future. That's what Paul's talking about here. And Ezekiel prophesied this. Okay? It's an inner soul cleansing made possible by Christ's sacrifice and the work of the Spirit. For, folks, this is the only way that you are truly going to receive the purification of sins. This is the way a human being is truly purified from their sin and their evil and their wickedness and their selfishness and their self-worship and their immorality. This is it. Now notice also, Paul clarifies this cleansing process of the Spirit due to Christ's work, due to the Holy Spirit's work with this expression. I love this. With or by way of the Word. Do you understand what he's saying there? One of the ways and means by which your soul is purged and cleansed and purified is by this right here. 
putting this into your mind and your heart and your soul, appropriating and translating these words into action in your life, and allowing the Spirit of God, by the power of His inspired Word, to clean you up from the inside out. That's what Paul is saying as well. That's how important the role of the Bible is in your life in getting you to your final destination. With or by way of the Word. So Paul is saying that what took place in the Old Testament by literally being washed ritually with water, it now happens in the era of the New Covenant by salvation in Christ, by the indwelling Holy Spirit, and by the teaching and proclamation of God's Word. The Gospel. You want to be cleaned up, you can't do without this. And pray God, you're being cleaned up right now as He is speaking to you out of His Word. So Paul is saying that the proclamation, the teaching of God's Word, the Gospel, plays a very significant role in the ongoing process of your sanctification, the purification of the believer, the purification of the church, and our journey towards our final destiny in the Lord Jesus. The final completion of each believer, of each and every member of Christ's bride is church. The Word of God is absolutely indispensable in accomplishing that. Verse 27, getting close to, we'll stop, we'll stop with 28 or the, the last part of 28. 27, that he, the Lord Jesus, might present to himself the church in all her glory. Isn't that interesting? Having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So here Paul gives us the goal, doesn't he? The purpose, the result of the cleansing and the purification. Christ, the great bridegroom of his church, his final ultimate goal is to be finally and completely united and bonded to and with his bride a purified bride, a purified church, on the day that He returns and completes the divine plan. Christ's goal and Christ's purpose in sanctifying His bride, His church, is a, very important. So He can present her to Himself. Present her to Himself at the end of all of human history as we know it. And usher in the new world. A new era of history altogether with His purified bride. Perfect bride, perfect kingdom. Bride completed, kingdom completed. Notice Paul says the church in all of her glory. That's us. That's a magnificent thing to say. The church in all her glory, or let me offer you this translation, the church on that day will be glorious. That's what he's saying. Paul is saying that on the day of days, the church will be pure, will be truly sanctified. That goal will be accomplished by Jesus Christ Himself. Ultimately, his bride, his church, will be glorious in moral purity. She will be splendid. She will be holy, truly, and at long last. And that's us. Believers will one day, by way of Christ, will appear before him completely holy and pure, the way human beings were meant to be in the first place. Notice also Paul emphasizes the holiness or purity of the bride of Jesus by stating that Christian believers will not have any, as he writes, spot or wrinkle or any such thing. He uses a funny little word there in Koine Greek for spot. It's spilos. S-P-I-L-O-S. And it literally means stain. He's saying, you and I and the church as a whole will have no spot, no stain, no wrinkle, any such thing, any moral imperfection whatsoever. And this word spilos is used only one other time in the New Testament. Peter uses it in his second letter to the churches. The bride will then be truly perfected. Redeemed humanity will finally and truly be restored to God's original intent and purpose. To bear His image and to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. A theologian by the name of Marcus Bart once wrote, Paul writes that the great bridegroom, as Jesus of course, the great bridegroom's love is characterized by the will and power to effect a total transformation in his bride and a total transformation of his bride. He attributes qualities to the bride, the church, which she, we, do not possess on our own. And she does not possess on her own. He ultimately cleans her up and purifies her and makes her, us, perfect. This, of course, far transcends, doesn't it, men? This far transcends anything you and I are going to accomplish for our wife. 
This far transcends anything that any mere mortal man, any mere mortal husband is going to be able to accomplish for his bride. It further confirms that this portion of the passage is solely a lesson on the person and work of Jesus. But he is an example for Christian husbands. Now, verse 28, closing verse for the day. We'll resume with the very end of verse 28 next week. So, back around to you husbands. After giving you some pretty deep theology about the person and work of Jesus and His relationship to redeem humanity, so husbands ought also to love their own wives. Are you kidding me? Living up to the example of Christ, that's the command. That's the example. So husbands ought also to love their wives, and this is interesting, as their own body. After all, this is perfectly logical and reasonable, isn't it? He who loves his own wife loves himself. You love your own wife, take care of her like your own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. And as we'll learn last week, for what? The two become one flesh. You're loving your wife, you love yourself. So let's pick apart the first part of 28 in closing. Let me offer you this translation as well. Uh, you can translate this as, uh, Thus, therefore, husbands ought to love their own wives as their, their very own bodies. The husband who loves his own wife loves himself. So obviously Paul is, is, is strengthening, is reinforcing the Lord's command for husbands to love with agape love of their own wives. By encouraging husbands, well really insisting, <laughs> that husbands care for their wives just as they would naturally care for their very own body. That's a tall command too. That goes against sinful, selfish human nature. When Paul writes, so husbands ought also. I want to give you this in the Greek because it's a little stronger. What we translate as ought to or ought also. A husband ought to or ought also to so love his own wife. The word in Greek for ought is ophelosain. And ophelosain means a very, very strong moral obligation to do something. So you get what he's saying here? Ophelosain ought to means husbands are under a very strong moral obligation to so love their own wives, as Christ loves His church, as Christ loved His church, hence the strong moral obligation. You see? This is an obligation, men, to Christ Himself. The command to the wives ultimately was an obligation to Christ Himself. Exactly the same thing for us. This is an obligation ultimately to Jesus Himself to so love and care for our wives in this way. We husbands are obligated to Jesus Christ to agape love our wives. We are as obligated or more obligated to Christ even more than our own wives in obeying this command. Here's something for you gentlemen. Oh boy, am I preaching to myself too. Believe me. Obey and emulate Jesus Christ and your wife will be blessed. Obey and emulate Jesus and your wife will be blessed. Your home will be blessed. Your family will be blessed. Your household, whoever lives in it or no, will be blessed. Notice again, of course, Paul writes, Husbands, treat your wives as you should treat or take care of your own body. Husbands should provide the same level of care, vigilance, in taking care of their wives. The same level that they care for their own body, that's the care that should be shown to and towards the wife. Paul says this, he's saying this to show you how to practically work this out. Paul's not just talking you, talking to you in the flighty abstract somewhere. He's saying this this way to tell you, look, this is where the rubber hits the road. This is how to, where we get down to brass tacks, as it were. This is how to literally, physically, practically, every day work this out. You take care of that woman with the same care and diligence as love as you would take care of your own body in getting through this life, in getting through this world. That's how you practically live it out. And yes, if you must literally die for the sake of your wife, like Jesus died for His wife, do it. 
That's the command. That's loving your wife with agape love. Paul says this to make this principle active, make it concrete, not just in the abstract, as I said a moment before. This is how his way of making the implications of this high standard of love real. This is how you work it out. This is how you make it practical in the marriage relationship. I'm going to close, but let me say this. For some reason, this has gone through my head several times. I don't know why. You remember the story of, of uh, the tragedy of the RMS Titanic? Sank in April of 1912. And uh, you've seen all of those films, some of them accurate, some of them not so accurate. But you read some of the wonderful books that have been written about that tragedy, which has such a hold on everybody's imagination. And you read of the old command with, uh, uh, given by the captain and the ship's architect who were on board at that time, and a representative of the company who was basically a worthless coward, but also of the crew. And it was women and children first. And I remember all of the instances of these husbands who practically had to pick up their wives and their daughters and hand them to an officer and put them in that boat because there was not enough room in the lifeboats for everybody on board. How's that for an example? And I remember one of the film versions, a young couple, it was, I think they were fictitious because it was to tug at your heartstrings. This was from the old black and white English film, A Night to Remember, which I think is probably the most accurate. And Mr. Andrews, the ship's designer, who had a wife and child back home, and he went down with the ship. And there was a young married couple who were newlyweds. And the young man was trying to get his young bride to get into that boat, and she wouldn't do it. I'm staying with you. And he said, please, just this once, I, I don't want to ask you to obey me. Please, this once, obey me. Do as I ask. Get into that boat. And Mr. Andrews was standing nearby, and he said, Mr. Andrews, would, would you help me here? And he said, are you married? And Mr. Andrews, yes. Yes, I am. And he looked directly at the young bride, and he said, and I do believe that in this circumstance, if my wife were here, my wife would do as I asked. Well, she refused to leave him. So Mr. Andrews said, he gave them instructions when to leave the ship, try to get away from it so it won't pull you under, wear something white so you'll be seen. And of course in the film, all three of them die. They didn't make it, Mr. Andrews went down with the ship. But that's a perfect example from history, how a husband is to be willing to sacrifice his life for his wife, literally. But that can play itself out in a million different ways in sacrificing for your wife and seeing to her health and her life and her welfare getting her on her way to the eternal kingdom even if you don't have to literally give your life for your wife or your children as those men did that night that's a wonderful and graphic and sort of the ultimate example but there's a million ways how this can be played out in your life Another example, how many of these husbands from these nations that we've been praying for do you think had to give their life literally to save the life of their wife? There's a lot of widows out there. The voice of the martyrs tries to help because their husband literally gave his life for Christ and gave his life defending his wife and his family. And the way this world is going, men, who knows? Who knows? I'll give the last word of a day, or the day, pardon me, just a word or two, to a gentleman who sums up today's verses beautifully. He's a man by the name of Jack Gibson. And years ago, Mr. Jack Gibson wrote a really great article for a theological magazine about uh, this, this passage of Paul's instructions to husbands and wives in Ephesians. And he wrote this article from the point of view of what marriage was really like 
for a couple in Ephesus at the time that he wrote this letter. It's very, very, very interesting. But let me give you his summary. He has a nice remark or two to make. And next week, by the way, we will return next week to the end of verse 28 with what Paul says, He who loves his own wife loves himself. And we'll continue from there. This is what Mr. Jack Gibson says. Notice, rather than focusing on the rights of the husbands and the rights of the wives, which Paul could have done, as was often the case in the first century, rather than providing some financial incentives for the promotion of marriage, Paul drives right to the heart of marriage unity by presenting the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ Himself on His cross as the model for the relationship of the husband to the wife. How radical is that? In the new household economy of God, let me repeat that. In the household economy of God, not cultures, but God's, in the new household economy of God, the husband is called upon to be willing to sacrifice everything for his wife up to and including his very life. That's emulating Jesus. For the husband, this is what it truly means for him to love his wife as Christ loved the church. The wife in return is to respect her husband as we should respect Christ and to show respect to him for his great sacrifices on her behalf. A marriage that is characterized by such love and respect will indeed and of course be a unified marriage and a successful one. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for these instructions for happy marriages and happy households. And what this culture of ours and every culture needs about the world are happy marriages and happy households. For this is the foundation of all of our society. The evil one has been working overtime in trying to destroy marriages and families, hence the destruction of a society. We should be working overtime to obey your commands, to strengthen and give life to our culture and our society by having unified, happy, healthy, Christ-like marriages and relationships and homes. Help us to truly be examples by applying these principles to our life. In the name of Jesus, God the Son, the great bridegroom. In His name we pray. Amen. To